Thanks, Annie. Do you make sure you can see Matthew chapter 27? Let's pray again as we come to God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, the speaking God. Father, thank you that through your word and by your spirit you speak to us, you reveal yourself to us. And so we pray that you would make us ready to listen this morning. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Most of us will be aware, I think, uh, of last year's hashtag MeToo movement. Uh, That movement that swept around the world. Following uh, Harvey Weinstein's sex scandal, millions of people spoke out against a culture of sexual abuse that lay unchallenged in the worlds of sport and media and film and business. But less of us, I imagine, are aware of the movement that went alongside that. Alongside the Me Too movement, some men began to post hashtag it was me. Men who had come to realize that they were directly or indirectly responsible for that toxic culture of sexual harassment. Men who had come to see that they were guilty. Just listen to what one of those men said in an interview. I began wondering if I was someone else's me too. I thought about one incident and said to myself, that was sexual assault. It was a hard thing to admit to myself, to realize I had assaulted someone. Over the course of the day, I went over other events in my past, trying to see what else I was either guilty of or complicit in. Not all the people who perpetrated the things behind the Me Too's are sexual predators. They are pretty much everyone. Nice, progressive, respectful guys. I admitted my guilt to show that the nice ones could have been someone else's Me Too. It's a very striking change of perspective, isn't it? To go from thinking that you are nice and respectable to someone guilty of sexual assault. And that is the sort of unsettling experience that Matthew wants us to feel as we read our passage this morning. You see, the theme of guilt runs through this section. As we see different people in different positions, but all people who are in some way responsible for what is happening to Jesus. All people who are guilty. And as we look at these people, Matthew wants to show us that whoever we are, however nice and respectable we think we might be, we too stand guilty before God. So the first thing we see is the guilty who hand over the innocent. The guilty who hand over the innocent. We pick up the story the morning after that shady nighttime trial that we looked at last week. The chief priests in the Sanhedrin, they've got Jesus, and 27 verse 1, they've made their plans about how to have him executed. They've got their story straight. And so now they're ready to take Jesus to the Roman governor, to Pilate. Ready to take him to the one who has the power to put him to death. But then just before we get to the trial, in verse 3, the scene shifts. 
Matthew moves our attention to Judas. Before we witness what will happen to Jesus, Matthew wants us to see the, the outcome for the one who betrayed him the night before. Look at verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. It's difficult to imagine how Judas must have felt, isn't it? He knows what he has done. He knows the chief priest's intentions, and so he knows where this whole thing is headed. And after committing this awful betrayal, suddenly Judas feels the weight of his guilt. Matthew says he was seized with remorse, crippled by the emotional pain of what he has done. In the cold light of day, it dawns on Judas that he has betrayed, he's handed over an innocent man. And it's agony for him. There's all sorts of advice out there on how to deal with this sort of guilt. Whether it's online or in the bookshop, much of that advice will simply tell you to just stop feeling guilty. After all, life is about feeling good, isn't it? No one wants to feel bad. That's not good for your health. So just stop feeling guilty about things. And then you'll find that everything is okay. (laughs) Can you imagine giving that kind of advice to Judas? Don't worry about it, Judas. It's not that big a deal. These things happen. It's no use feeling bad about it. That's not going to help anyone. No. No, no, Judas knows he is guilty. He knows his guilt is real. He's crippled by it, seized by it. He can't just wish it away, pretend it's not there. And so look at what he does. When faced with his sin and his guilt, he goes to the, <clears throat> to the temple, to the priests, to, to the people whose very job it is to deal with this sort of thing. What do they say when he gets there? Verse 4, what is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. It's an astonishing thing for these people to say to Judas, isn't it? What is that to us? The people whose job it is to deal with guilt, through the temple, through the sacrificial system, this has everything to do with them. But more importantly than that, we know these are the men who paid Judas to commit this awful betrayal. They're complicit, they're responsible, guilty, along with Judas. It has everything to do with them. But the priests are no use. It's your problem, they say. Leave us alone. And so, verse 5, we read the sad and tragic end for Judas. Verse 5, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. There's been lots of speculation about the psychology of Judas, what he was thinking, what led him to take his own life. But Matthew's intention here is not for us to psychoanalyze Judas. No, no, Matthew just wants us to see that Judas knows he's guilty. He is genuinely remorseful. But that remorse didn't lead him to the one place 
that could have dealt with his guilt. The one person who could have dealt with his guilt. The very person he'd betrayed. You see, there is a difference between remorse and repentance. Judas felt remorse. He felt bad. But he didn't repent. He didn't turn around and come back to the one that he had betrayed. He didn't turn around and come back to the one who could forgive him. He didn't turn around and come back to Jesus. Judas is guilty. But acknowledging your guilt, that's not enough. And neither is trying to cover it up, which is what the priests try to do. Despite their denial in verse 4, we know, that, we know by now that, that Jesus' death has everything to do with these men. They're the ones who have been plotting his death. They're the ones who carried out that nighttime trial full of false witnesses and false evidence. They're the ones who paid Judas the blood money. They are guilty, no matter what they say. But unlike Judas, they show no remorse. They, they instead try to cover their guilt with pious good deeds. Verse 6 and 7 is almost beyond belief when you stop and read it. These priests, they won't use the blood money in the temple because, well, that's against the law, they say. Forget the fact that this very money is the money they used to pay for an innocent man's arrest and eventual execution. That was okay, but now, well, now it's back in the temple. We must use it appropriately, they think. So they decide to buy a field for foreigners so they can bury their dead in. It's a good deed. A good deed for foreigners at that. You see, I think there's, there's a sense in which the priests know that, uh, that they're guilty, that there's something up. They know that, that the money is dodgy. But they're happy to conceal it. Happy to convince themselves and convince others that good deeds are enough to deal with it. To deal with their guilt, to cover it up. No one need know. Uh, we can do just the same, can't we? We can think that we can cancel out our guilt with good deeds. We all know how it goes. That We feel bad about something that we've done or, or said or thought. And so what do we do? We redouble our efforts. I'll come to both services every, uh, every, day, every Sunday this month. I'll give a bit more money to church. I'll make sure I have some really excellent quiet times this week. Of course, none of those are wrong things, but, but so often they're simply ways for us to try and cover up the, the guilt that we feel. Judas knows that he's guilty, but he doesn't repent. The priests know they're guilty, but they think they can cover it up. They think they can cancel it out with good deeds. And then we come to Pilate. Verse 11, the scene shifts back to Jesus' trial before this Roman governor. And I wonder if you noticed as we read it that, that Matthew makes it clear that Pilate is well aware of Jesus' innocence. Verses 12 and 13, Pilate tries to give Jesus a chance to defend himself. Verse 12, when he, Jesus, was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. 
Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? Come on, Jesus. I'm trying to help you out here. Can't you hear what they're saying about you? Say something. Give some sort of defense, Jesus. But Jesus remained silent. And so failing that, in verse 16, Pilate decides to bring out a well-known criminal, Barabbas. And he gives the crowd a choice. He'll release one prisoner to them. The clearly innocent Jesus... Or, crowd, you can have the clearly guilty Barabbas. It's a fix. Take the guilty one. It's a fix because in verse 18 we see why Pilate is so reluctant to condemn Jesus. He, he knows this whole thing is a result of the priest's self-interest. It's got nothing to do with justice, nothing to do with truth. And then verse 19, his wife knows that Jesus is innocent. She warns Pilate, have nothing to do with him. And so you, you see, we're, we're to be in no doubt of Pilate's understanding. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. And so here is a man who has the power to carry out justice, to release the innocent and condemn the guilty. But the influence of the priests and the crowd is too strong for him. Verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted louder, crucify him. Faced with the choice of doing what is right and doing what is easy, what does Pilate do? Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Backed into a corner, Pilate thinks he can just avoid responsibility. He thinks he can remove guilt simply by washing his hands. Just as the priests were deluded into thinking that one good deed could remove their guilt, so Pilate is deluded into thinking he can just deny it. Deny responsibility, deny guilt, and that'll just make it all go away. So do you see? This passage is full of guilty people. Judas, the priests, Pilate, even the crowd acknowledge their responsibility in verse 25. This is all humanity. Jew and Gentile. Religious and pagan. Powerful and poor. All guilty of handing Jesus over to death. All guilty of rejecting God's king. His Messiah. And the reason Matthew includes all types of people is that he wants us to see that this is what all people are like. All people reject God's king. The Bible says that by nature we are God's enemies, rebels against him, that he is a threat 
to our way of life. He stands between me and my desire to live life my way. And so every time that I decide to live my way, to do things my way, rather than submit to King Jesus, I'm simply wishing that he did not exist. I'm wishing that he were dead. When faced with God's king, the whole human race joins with the crowd in Matthew 27 and says, crucify him. Last week, we were reminded that Jesus is in complete control throughout this ordeal. We saw that he doesn't die because of Judas's weakness or the priest's hatred or Pilate's cowardice. We saw that he dies because he chooses to. But this week we see that that does not mean we are not guilty. It does not remove our guilt. As one writer puts it, the tragedy of our race is that every human being has divine blood on their hands. But the wonder of history is that the divine son shed his blood for that same human race. The tragedy of our race is that every human being has divine blood on their hands. But the wonder of history is that the divine son shed his blood for that same human race. And that leads us on to the second thing that I want us to see this morning. The innocent who dies for the guilty. You see, Matthew doesn't just want to emphasize people's guilt. He also wants us to see that Jesus is innocent. It's a theme that began last week as we saw the Sanhedrin try to gather false evidence and false witnesses against him. And it continues into this trial before Pilate. We've just seen, haven't we, that Pilate is well aware that the priests aren't interested in truth or justice or whether Jesus is actually guilty. They just want him out of the way. Verse 19, his wife's message don't have anything to do with this innocent man. Again, in verse 23, Pilate asks the crowds, what crime has he committed? If we went to John's gospel three times, we would see Pilate bring Jesus out before the crowd and say, I find no basis for a charge against him. This man is innocent. We're meant to see that Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing to deserve death. Which makes Pilate's other question in verse 23 one of the most significant questions we could ever ask. In response to the crowds who shout, crucify him, Pilate asks, why? Why must this innocent man die? Why must the one who has done nothing wrong be condemned, uh, condemned and killed as though he were guilty? And the answer Matthew gives, the answer that is spelled out in the rest of this gospel and the rest of the Bible, is that Jesus, the innocent man, dies in the place of the guilty. He dies so the guilty can go free. And we see that in the example of Barabbas, don't we? Just imagine yourself in Barabbas' shoes for a moment. There you are, sitting in a Roman jail, waiting for your death. You know you're going to be crucified for your crimes. And if you're honest with yourself, 
you know that you deserve it. There aren't many worse ways for a man to die. And so day after day, you sit in jail thinking about the nails, the mockery, the the excruciating pain, the blood that will fill your lungs, the breaking of your legs. You know that's your future. You don't know when it's coming, but you know it will come. And then very early one morning, you hear a mob outside Something's going on. You can hear the crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him. The Roman guards come to get you. They drag you out in front of the angry mob and they set you free. You're told to go home. You can't believe it. You stand there not sure what to think. And then you you notice another man being led away. You watch as he stumbles off under the weight of of the cross, the cross that you thought you'd be carrying. You ask some bystanders who this man is, what he's done, what was his crime. They seem surprisingly hazy on that. They're not really sure. All they can tell you is that they've chosen you to live and him to die. Somehow you're going free because this man is going to die. Do you see? Jesus bore the guilt and shame, the disgrace and death that Barabbas deserved. Whilst Barabbas received the freedom, the life that Jesus deserved. Barabbas was considered innocent and free, whilst Jesus stood condemned to death. And so that begins to answer that why question in verse 23. This is the glorious message of the cross. That God the Father sent God the Son to die in the place of guilty people like Barabbas. Guilty people like you and guilty people like me. In our evening services at the moment, we are looking at the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. This evening we've reached verse 4. Just listen to how Isaiah describes what is happening to Jesus at the cross 700 years before these events in Matthew 27. Isaiah writes of Jesus, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can come back this evening, or you can listen online to hear more about those verses in Isaiah. But I hope you can see what Isaiah is saying. I hope you can see what Matthew is showing us all of us are guilty. Whoever we are, however we've lived, however respectable we might be, we are all guilty of rejecting Jesus. Whether that's through indifference or apathy or outright hostility, we have rejected God's King. In our hearts, all of us have handed him over 
to death. But because of his great love for us, Jesus, the innocent one, lay down his life to pay for that guilt. He died to take the punishment we deserve. He died so that we could be set free. And actually, it's it's even more than that, isn't it? It's more because Jesus' death, it doesn't just release us into some sort of neutral state. No, his death means we can be forgiven. It means we can be restored from being God's enemy to becoming his friend. From sinful rebel to loved child of God. Jesus' death means that our guilt is completely dealt with. And so it means we can live secure in a right relationship with God, with the one who made us and loves us today, tomorrow, forever. So let me ask as we close, what are you doing with your guilt this morning? Are you trying to deny it? Are you pretending that it's not your responsibility? Are you trying not to feel guilty? Trying to convince yourself that you're better than you really are? Are you trying to cover it up? Cancel it out by being a better person, a better Christian even? If that's you, then I hope you can see that none of those things work. In the end, your guilt remains. And whilst you might fool others, whilst you might even fool yourself, you can't fool God. By ourselves, there is nothing we can do to remove our guilt. But the wonderful news of Matthew 27 is that God has made a way. He has sent his son to die so that by trusting in him, we can be forgiven. By trusting in him, our guilt is done away with, completely removed, dealt with forever. Are you trusting Jesus with your guilt? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this amazing exchange that the the innocent one, the Lord Jesus, would die for the guilty, would die for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that if we are trusting in him, in his death on the cross, that you have removed our sin from us, our guilt from us, as far as the east is from the west, that we have been cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus. Father, would we live secure in that knowledge? For Jesus' name's sake we pray. Amen.